Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Good to have you with us on this week's We Love Movies. Coming up, we will be reviewing Jurassic World. Dominion, which is the last in the series, or is it the last in the series? But mind you, the way the reviews are going, it could be extinction for Jurassic Park slash Jurassic World. That's all to come very shortly on We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Hello, and you were listening to We Love Movies. I'm Gordon Hayden, and I'm joined by Chris Wasser and Andy McCarroll to take a look at what is playing in cinemas this week. And of course, it is Jurassic World Dominion. Before we chat about it, here's a clip. How are you kids? Mm. Amazing. Grown. It's shocking. They're both in college. Can you believe that? And Mark? It's over. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's okay. I'm back to me. My work. You know, it's... That's great. It's good. It is. I'm alone at last. Exciting times. Yeah, I'm living the Alan Grant life. It's just... Can be lonely. So free. Allie, you didn't come out all this way just to catch up now, did you? So there is a little bit from Jurassic World Dominion, which is the sixth film in the Jurassic Park slash Jurassic World series, which sees the, the characters played by Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, of course, from the Jurassic World series, and now teaming up with the legacy characters from the original films. You've got Sam Neill in there, Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum. And joining me now to take a look at this a new installment is Andy McCarroll and Chris Wasser. Chris, as a matter of interest, did uh, going into this uh, new installment of Jurassic World, were you going in with any trepidation? Did you even care at this point? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think we've spoken about this on the show before that it looked to be, judging by the trailers, it looked to be, you know, this explosive, uh, you know, uh, funny and and hopefully fun greatest hits package that, you know, if this is really to be the so-called epic conclusion to the Jurassic era, you know, we were going out on the high. We were bringing back the old gang. We were putting them together with Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. It looked as though there was an awful lot going on in terms of story and plot. And it looked as though Colin Trevorrow was actually going to, you know, give us the, the best film of the series. Um, so I just thought, you know, look, it, even if it's better than Fallen Kingdom, which I didn't have an awful lot of time for, there were some elements about it that I quite liked. You know, the the, the, the horror, the, the haunted house elements. Remember when the dinosaurs were skulking about the place, you know, jumping up on people. I thought that was quite good. But if it was better than the film as a whole, and even than the first one, I'd take that. Unfortunately, things appear to have gone sideways. Oh, dear. So that, well, that's not good, especially when you've got everyone back on screen. Um, so Andy, plot wise, what is happening? Because with Jurassic World, it's kind of unfortunately, I know that the first film make a huge amount of money. And of course, there was a huge nostalgic factor. There's a whole generation that look upon Jurassic Park like the way I know the whole other generation would have viewed Star Wars and Jaws, for example. So there was a huge amount of love, of course, for Jurassic Park. And people really wanted to see that blossom with Jurassic World. Chris Pratt, obviously, on a, on a, on a great run. And the second film, film, Fallen Kingdom, you'd be forgiven for just feeling that that just went under the radar entirely. You nearly forget that film nearly even existed because it just seemed to come and go from cinemas. And I don't know, it, it had that much of attachment it, it, because 
maybe I'm just being cynical here. It didn't really ever feel like there was enough story to even stretch this to a trilogy. But we now have the final film, which sees, as I mentioned earlier there, that Chris Pratt, Bry- Bryce Dallas Howard joined by the legacy characters. So how does this all fit together these characters in the finale it doesn't is the the quick answer to that what it is it's basically the same plot as every other jurassic world or jurassic park film there's a you know an evil billionaire who's trying to use the dinosaurs for evil under the pretense that he's trying to use them for good they think they can control the dinosaurs obviously that they can't but he seems to have a slightly more nefarious means than he has the kind of nothing really sums up how disjointed this film is Without explaining the bad guy, the bad guy in this film is Campbell Scott, who was playing Lewis Dodgson, who most people don't hear that name. He's the guy from the first film that buys the embryos from Dennis Nedry. You know, we got Dodson here, we got Dodson here. And so he is the guy who was working for a company that was stealing the samples in the first film. But now he's being played as the billionaire that he was in the books that they didn't use that character for. And he is playing him as Steve Jobs but is still might be the character from the first film as well, because there's a hint to that, like the, the shaving foam thing confused, possibly pointless. Absolutely. It is just a disjointed mess of a thing. And it just, it really, you, you said there fallen kingdom was completely forgettable. This film really makes you think that you paid so much attention to that film. And based on the kind of whispers of people around me in the audience, like there were so many, who's that? Who's she? What, what, hang on, what was this that happened? There's so many callbacks to a film that is completely unmemorable that I was forgetting about as I was watching it. And then on top of that, they kind of make you think, hang on, nobody here has seen a Bourne film or a James Bond film. So we're just going to put scenes from that in it. There's one scene where a raptor does the jump that Jason Bourne does through the window. And I'm just looking at what. what what is this supposed to be? It hasn't a clue. There's no point. I know you're saying you asked me for a plot synopsis. There isn't one, is the, is the short answer. It is a collection of scenes from different films tied together with characters from this series and another series and maybe a series and maybe from the books as well. It is an absolute mess of a thing. And the most unforgivable part of it is you've got people like Jeff Goldblum, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and mix them with Chris Pratt. And then you've got dinosaurs and everything thrown in the mix. And it is just so wretchedly dull and boring and overlong. And I love the first one. The first one was one of my favorite films of all time. And to go from that to this is how you manage to do it. It's actually kind of impressive. It's a sad indictment, isn't it? The way nostalgia is just being served up. And it just and a lot of these films just have a real soulless feel to them. Like Chris, in terms of like Jurassic World and the, the one bit that I do remember from the second film is that you kind of got the feeling that it was going to open it up into a world stage uh, for the final film. But it really hasn't, by all accounts, in that it really set uh, in Italy. And so we don't really see the dinosaurs taking over the world as such. Yeah. But it's more to do with locusts. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? And then how the legacy characters are brought into the into the story? Well, it's actually quite strange, Gordon, because um, the oddest thing about this film, and this is a very odd film at times, is that despite what the sign above the door says, it often forgets that it's supposed to be about dinosaurs. And as Andy touched upon there, you know, something at the screening that we both attended, you know, there was a little bit of confusion, you know, from the people around us and for myself that what's going on and who are these characters and why does this film think that we were paying that much attention to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which again, plot wise was a bit of a mess. And you're expected to remember things about characters that were just kind of, you know, 
in, in you know there were just walk on parts there was like little easter eggs throughout the film throughout the last one i mean that are now expanded upon in this but the main thing that we we, we took away from the end of fallen kingdom was that genetically modified dinosaurs were reintegrated into the wider world and would now be coexisting on the planet with humans and that obviously this was going to lead to you know an ecological disaster and that we were just it was the world would become a war zone this isn't really touched upon. I mean, it's kind of, well, it's, it's explored within the first two minutes in, you know, news footage. It's that kind of lazy, it's that lazy filmmaker trope where we'll just explain everything that's happened in the intervening years through, through you know, headlines and news footage and YouTube clips, and then we'll move on to a story that's an awful lot smaller. That's so disappointing. I think Colin Trevorrow missed a trick there. You could have made a fantastic sci-fi even horror film about what it would be like you know this this sort of world where dinosaurs might not be on every street but they're a little bit like bears you know you've never seen a bear at your back garden but they're there what if one day they came to attack something like that something an awful lot smaller um but in this one there's so many different plots with chris pratt and 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 bryce dallas howard their characters are now parents to the human clone girl from the last film her name is Maisie lockwood but the human clone girl from the last film was probably the worst misstep in the Jurassic franchise ever. And I, I can't believe that we're still, you know, that this film is mostly about that. And then on the other side, you mentioned mutant locusts. There are mutant locusts. And for reasons that the film never really fully explains, it brings the old gang back to explore these mutant locusts at this Bond villainy type set up in an inside a snowy mountain where you've got the Dodgson character from the first five minutes of the Jurassic Park film playing this sort of Steve Jobs slash Elon Musk sort of character who wants to control the world's food chain. And well, I, I don't really know what it is that he wants to do, but he's created these mutant locusts and Sam Neill's character, Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler by Lord Darren and Malcolm, they're all back together to stop him. Why? How did they get there? What exactly? What, what, why is it falling to them? I don't, I never really understood what was happening there, Gordon? So there's so, yeah. so there's too many different storylines in this film, and they're all competing for our attention. And it's so strange because on the one hand, you can see that universe, you can see Amblem, Colin Trevor, everyone involved in this thinks that they're making this huge, respectable legacy sequel. You know, people want nostalgia; they want to see the old band back together. Maybe they do, but I think if you look at what Tom Cruise has done with, say, Top Gun Maverick. That's how you make a legacy sequel. You know, you bring together a team of experts, you treat it with care, you spend years working on this thing, you, 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 you find, you know, what people loved about the first one and don't repeat it. Keep the same tone, keep the same heart and charm and everything else that goes with it, but don't be remaking scenes. Don't be putting out something that's witless and lazy and just basically a, re a rehash of the first one. And Top Gun Maverick succeeded. With this, it's almost like Colin Trevorrow just takes everything you loved about the first film brings the band back together and then all of the instruments are just out of tune and says, and it's almost as though Colin Trevor is saying, you know, will this do? Look, we'll have Laura Darren take off her sunglasses when she sees a dinosaur again. Look, she's all shocked. We'll have Alan's, uh, Alan Grant's dig interrupted by another helicopter. We'll have, you know, we'll, we'll basically put Ian Malcolm in the same outfit that he was in in the first one. That's not good enough. That is lazy. That is staggeringly stupid. And it's such a shame to see these beloved characters just walking into each other to, for, to, for, for, for two hours, not knowing what they should do with themselves. Andy, Colin Trevorrow, there was one time, and I say one time, I hate to say this, but he had a lot of promise around him. Like safety not guaranteed was, was a bit of a festival darling. And George Lucas had really picked him out as, as someone of note and potentially could go on to make a Star Wars movie, it seemed. And, and that at one stage looked like it was going to happen because he was given the gig 
to make episode nine off the strength of the success he had with Jurassic World, the first film. And then Book of Henry came out and Kathleen Kennedy did what she's always done is that when she gets spooked by bad press or if a director has a little bit of a dud or there's anything going on behind the scenes, she gets rid of them as soon as possible. And Trevorrow was unfortunately victim to the box office uh, failure of Book of Henry. And then it turns out that actually his draft for episode nine was a far better film or far better story, I should say, to what the likes of J.J. Abrams churned out. And but he went it seems like he went back to the well for Jurassic World Dominion. What is your take on him and what the future might hold off the back of uh, this latest installment, which looks like it's going to be universally panned? Yeah, his take of uh, was episode nine. It looks good, but I don't know if he would be the guy I would trust to deliver it based on this. Because as a concept, this sounds like, oh, great, we're getting all the original characters back. We're going to have you know, the, the characters from this series come back. You've got Chris Pratt from Guardians of the Galaxy. We've got like hybrid dinosaurs. On paper, this sounds like it's like exciting, if nothing else. But the execution is just so unbelievably dull. Like there's, there's two new dinosaurs, I think, thrown in here. I'm saying I think because they're not explained or given any sort of gravitas. They then all fight each other in some kind of indistinguishable grey blob mess hitting into each other. It looked more like a Transformers movie. We were like, is that a T-Rex? Is that, a, is that one of the new ones? Is that one of the old ones? The T-Rex, again, that's for some reason, remember that scene at the end of the first one where it saves them from the raptors? They've decided that the T-Rex is now Captain America in these films because he you know, comes back to life after being killed. He's coming back. He gets the hero music. He runs in slow motion. Even the raptors, you know, Chris Pratt, who... I at one point said, oh, this guy could play Indiana Jones. He seems to have had a charisma transplant and every part of it has just been replaced with whispering like this, I will get you back and talking to a dinosaur that I'm going to make a solemn promise to. And he's wincing like Clint Eastwood and he's putting his hand out like Iron Man every two minutes. And he's just a, a black hole of what used to be this like really charismatic guy. And now he has trained the raptors to the point where there was that scene at the, the starting with Jurassic World where the, the raptor basically nods them at the end, like, good job. They take it 10 steps further in this film. Like, I was genuinely waiting for the raptor to throw on a leather jacket, a pair of sunglasses and hop on a motorbike <laughs> with him because that's all that is missing from this. It doesn't know what it is. It this serious, you know, eco message film or is it this, you know, camp dinosaur mess? It, it's just a mixture of everything. And I wouldn't trust him with, you know, to make a microwave lunch at this point, let alone, you know, a billion dollar franchise, because he has shown when you have like, you've got Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Gold, like Jeff Goldman is just a charisma, Mike. Like he made a show on Disney where it was him buying jeans and runners. And I watched like eight episodes, but purely from the fact that this man is just a force of nature and you have him in this and make him dull, like making Jeff Goldman dull is a, a talent unto itself. So no, I would certainly, it's one of the few times I agree with Kathleen Kennedy and say, no, I should not have handed him the keys to the kingdom. Granted, what we got instead wasn't, I'd say, much better than he would have done, but I'd be interested to see where he goes. Does he go back to making kind of the smaller indie films like Safety Not Guaranteed or because these films are just money-making behemoths, somebody will hand him, you know, the, the keys to something else so he can run another franchise into the ground. I would totally agree with Andy there as well in that it seems as though, you know, Trevor, remember, these are fabulous ingredients. He's just made a bad meal with them. And, and, and it's so odd again that lean into the dinosaurs and that doesn't mean showing us the dinosaurs in every scene. I mean, 
the, the, th- the thing that Spielberg did with Jurassic Park was that he created this sense of awe and wonder and suspense, and he delayed the arrival of the T-Rex until it was like, okay, now you deserve some sort of you know carnage. Now we're going to give you a little bit of horror, and then we'll pull back again. We'll bring the Velociraptors in the end. He knows how to craft and tell a story. Trevor, on the other hand, he has shown with you know the likes of Safety Not Guaranteed that you know he can do something impressive. But with these kinds of films, he couldn't direct his way out of a plastic bag. He doesn't know how to create that level of suspense. He doesn't know how to create a proper spectacle. And for some reason, at various points throughout this thing, and he can't be the only one to blame here, it's as though he wants to make a Bourne film. I mean, there's all these motorcycle chases happening in Malta. I had no clue what was happening. He wants to make a Bond film. You know, the, 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 like, the, like the villain of this piece is a villain from a Bond uh, 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 series. And he also gets involved in these, you know, weird supergroup CIA types who are chasing down dino smugglers. And it just becomes a little too familiar to a certain Vin Diesel franchise. And the whole time I was watching it, I was thinking, this is where we're going. We're going with Jurassic World, you know, Fast and Furious. Or that's that's what's going to happen here. And and it's so it's so tragic because this is not what we were sold 29, 30 years ago. This is not where this thing should have been where where Jurassic Park should be is you know up on the shelf left alone as a single film and you said there about us being like this is what we are so like the original is the quote that John Hammond's like I want to give them something real something that you could see and touch that wasn't an illusion and this film spends way too much telling not showing and there's one eye rolling scene where a character kind of makes this you know blink and you'll miss it allusion to being gay and you can tell this has just been put in to launch a thousand terrible articles that say jurassic world dominion has its first gay character in the franchise and that is it nothing else is further said about it it was literally okay check that box and if china aren't happy with it we'll take that out as well in the film so like you said it's like bond born everything just check the boxes move on and it's nothing of itself oh i'm so visually disappointed what a way to just whimper out of a, a hugely successful series but again i suppose it just goes to show you jurassic park was just a, a great idea onto itself and that it really was a one and done type movie because all you were ever going to do was create a diluted version of the first film which we've seen um over the years and case in point here it just just seems like an incoherent mess let's get scores on the board gents chris out of 10 for jurassic world Ah, oh, stop the lights. It's appalling. It, it really is. And it's, it's, it, it crushed me. Um, I just kept thinking the whole time, Gordon, about what Jeff Goldblum's Ian Malcolm says to the science lads in the first Jurassic Park film, you know, about how they were all caught up th- in thinking about what they could do, but they never stopped to think of what they should do. And this, this, this film should never have been made. Um, I, I, think, I think I'd be fair given the two out of ten. Isn't another point to be made about why does everything have to be a trilogy? Of course, it's a, we all know why it has to be a trilogy because the, the studio wants money. to make money. But really and truly, there wasn't enough story here to stretch this to a trilogy. Uh, it, it, you'd be lucky if you got two films, really, uh, from the, this, this sequel series. But anyway, we could go off on a complete tangent all about that. Andy, for you, out of 10 for Jurassic World Dominion? Gordon, after some consideration, I have decided not to endorse your park. Three out of ten. <laughs> oh, well, so you can tell he's been thinking about using it. Yeah. <laughs> I've had that in the chamber since last night. <laughs> oh, I love it. Hey, guys, thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. That is all t- t- terrible scores all around for Jurassic World Dominion. But look, it'll be interesting to see how well it does this weekend, but it'll be next week 
I'd be intrigued to see the drop off for Jurassic World Dominion as word starts to spread. Right, Chris Wasser, Andy McCarroll, thank you so much. We love movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Welcome back to part two of We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Chris Wasser is still with me. We're now going to take a look at Alex Garland's new film, Men, which was released in cinemas last week and it stars our very own Jesse Buckley. Chris, in terms of the plot for this film, it, it seems from like but the way the trailer, because it's a folk horror type tale, but from the trailer, we see that Jesse Buckley, she looks like someone that is suffering with an awful lot of trauma and this house that she escapes to almost feels like this is a real getaway for her. And Rory Kinnear looks to be playing a series of different individuals within this local village. And maybe this is all part of what Jesse Buckley is going on, because all of these different people, they all look like Rory Kinnear. So this is obviously have some sort of impact on her, 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 um, her current mental state. So, Plot-wise, can you delve a little bit more, Chris, into how all of that seems to shape the narrative of the story? Yeah, and certainly you have you have the bones of it there. And Jessie Buckley is essentially playing a traumatized widow. Um, her name is Harper. Uh, she is this young woman who's looking to escape, you know, a recent tragedy. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that her husband has died. I mean, it's it's all there in the trailers and it's all kind of there in the setup. And that, you know, she's looking to escape this tragedy by holidaying alone in this extravagant British countryside manner. Um, now, obviously, you know, this retreat to the countryside to, for, for a long time is not going to go according to plan, you know, because this is a horror film. But Harper is, you know, assuring herself in the opening segments and her, and also her pal over FaceTime, Riley, played by Gail Rankin, that there's nothing to worry about. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, we kind of beg to differ because almost immediately Rory Kinnear's Jeffrey, who's the bumbling landlord from whom she's renting the house, he is a strange one. You know, his jokes are a bit weird. He has this weird line at the beginning when she, you know, Harper arrives and the first thing she does is pick an apple up off the ground that's fallen from a tree. And he says to her, you know, you mustn't eat the apple. That's forbidden fruit. And then tells her that he's joking, but you're thinking to yourself, is he? Um, and the next sign that, you know, something might be wrong is after Harper goes for a walk in the countryside and comes across this naked man who is then who's also played by Roy Kinnear, who then starts stalking her. Um, so there's an awful lot going on here, but you know, you might be glad to know that the, the naked man is tracked down by the police, they arrest him and all is right. But Harper, well, you think all is right, but Harper is just plagued with these flashbacks of this joyless marriage that, as I say, ended in just spectacularly grim fashion. And she's kind of, you know, going around the village, kind of looking for answers to questions she hasn't asked. And she sits down with the vicar at one stage. That's Rory Kinnear. Um, you know, she kind of uh, uh, joins the locals in the pub. But they're all kind of suggesting that all of the things that have gone wrong in her life and everything, you know, to do with her, her husband's death is her fault. So all of the men, they're, 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 they're bad eggs. And, you know, it's not, it's, 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 it's not long before, you know, she's trapped in this house by herself and all of the men come, come for her. Now, hopefully I haven't given them too much away there. It sounds a little bit complicated, but that's the general setup. All right, Chris, let us take a little bit then from men starring Jesse Buckley. My husband, let himself go. Inevitably, you'll feel an awful sense of guilt. What? You must wonder why you drove him to it. Why, I didn't drive him to it. You're tormented. Haunted. <laughs> this is the power that you exert. Why are you doing that? 
There is a little bit from Men, which is currently playing in Irish cinema, starring Jesse Buckley, written and directed by Alex Garland. Alex Garland really came onto my radar around uh, the time of the beach when Danny Boyle adapted his book and then they would work together again on 28 Days Later. And then he's gone on to become a director in his own right. You could also you could kind of say maybe he was the unofficial director of Dread because he his fingerprints were all over that. Even though he wrote the script, I think he had a very he had a big say in terms of the direction of that film. But his directorial debut was Ex Machina, and then he followed up with Annihilation, and now we have Men. Is this Chris? We'll dive straight into this because you know you've got Rory Kinnear playing the best part of it, nine or ten different characters. And as we mentioned from the get go, Jesse Buckley, she's gone through a very traumatic experience with the loss of her husband. And I am wondering, is this some sort of feminist type of parable, um, an extreme feminist type of parable, just in regard to men in general and what they seem to represent? Uh, That's curious to know about that. And also, is the film, does it kind of think it's, almost cleverer than it is because um, I think for any kind of cinema goer, they'll be able to pick up the fact that Rory Kinnear is playing all these different characters. So is Alex Garland, the director, is he hoping that people don't and they may be surprised then by the end? I'm not really sure. And I must admit, there were times during this film where I could see maybe sort of where Alex Garland was going with his ideas, but he's, it still confused me. And I should start by saying that Garland, I'm a fan of, um, you know, you mentioned the beach there, uh, you know, terrific novel for a while. There was, you know, the, the generation X uh, generation X's favorite author. And then also it's favorite screenwriter too, because, you know, for a while there, he was Danny Boyle's go-to scribe for all things, you know, freaky and sinister, you know, without Garland, there'd be no 28 days later. Um, and also I quite liked their, um, their, their sci-fi horror sunshine, definitely flawed. Um, but the one where the Killian Murphy goes into space to, save the world uh yes. not, a, not you know an imperfect horror but but one that i was that, that that i'm glad was made in the first place um and also ex machina such an accomplished sci-fi uh parable donald gleason was terrific in it alicia vikander oscar isaac quite liked annihilation with natalie portman too so this guy's records you know he's had a good streak and as a filmmaker as a as a director between ex machina and annihilation has shown that you know he's a filmmaker of, 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 of substantial worth i just think he's flown a little too close to the sun with this thinking maybe for a second that he's ben wheatley and then realizing you know maybe halfway through production i don't know if he did but that maybe all is you know this this film is not as well thought out as as he'd hoped because certainly you know the the ingredients are there for this really sneaky slippery socially conscious chiller um but it's it's a bit all over the place so as i said it's loaded to the gills with ideas with metaphors with motifs and it's and it's narrative and i think i have this right abused woman trapped in this sort of patriarchal purgatory that that's what i'm getting from it that's that's a, that's a strong idea it needs more it needs fleshing out it needs to to be developed a little bit more now i should say jesse buckley is terrific in this i mean she could recite the contents of a cereal box and i and i paid to see it she is working very hard here probably harder than the film deserves and it looks as and there are times when we get those flashbacks that i mentioned to this joyless marriage and she's you know her husband and uh, she and her husband are screaming their heads off at each other and you're, i'm thinking to myself this is a you know a, a, a British version of, a, of Noah Bambuk's A Marriage Story playing out. I want to see the rest of that film. Forget about the folk, uh, you know, the absurd horror that's playing on, uh, out on the side. I, I want to see that, but we never really get it. Um, and also, Kinnear is very good, but let's talk about him playing 
all of the male characters. I'm not sure if that works here. Again, you can see what they're playing at. And I think the big question here is, are blokes all the same? And that's a that that's you know that that's a promising setup. That's a promising question, and, and it does start very well, and and it's very self aware, and that and that helps. But it just gets a little bit too sloppy the longer it, it, it the, the longer it plays out. And there were times where I was thinking to myself, this is like not all men. The movie again, ideas are there, questions are asked, but it's just all over the place. And does and, it, and does the payoff work thing, Chris? No. Like for example, yeah, yeah, great. Because I was going to go <laughs> if you were going to have Rory Kinnear play these multiple characters. And if Alex Garland is hoping that only by the end of you go, oh, right, are you must playing them all along. Like, again, yeah, how does you say it? No, straight away. But without getting into too much of the reveal. Yeah. Like, how does that really play out to to kind of justify the idea of this sort of patriarchal society? If, if Rory Kinnear is representing all these different sort of archetypes. Oh, I found it to be all set up and no payoff and at times i think we're supposed to be spooked by this there is one genuinely unsettling scene that takes place in a tunnel the scene that i'm talking about is kind of you know provided the basis for for, for the posters and for for, for most of the marketing material so obviously everyone involved knows this is this is a magnificent centerpiece but aside from that it, it there are times where garland is clearly going for this you know unsettling jordan uh, Jordan Peele sort of territory where, you know, we'll present you with something silly, but hopefully it will spook you. Unfortunately, with Garland, it's we'll present you with something silly and we can't see past the silliness. And Kinnear, although he's working extraordinarily hard, his characters, they're all they're, they're, they're using, actually, I should say using pretty ropey uh, computer effects and also some heavy makeup. They end up looking like, you know, the the, the characters from the League of Gentlemen or something from, from, from Little Britain. And you're not supposed to be giggling away at this, but I was. And I just thought to myself, the biggest plot hole, I think, and again, I was confused. Maybe other people didn't get this. Is Harper not aware that everyone's Rory Kinnear? And, and as you said there, Gordon, are we not? Are we supposed to be aware that everyone's Rory Kinnear? Because mm. I, 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 can, I can see us. Am, am I not supposed to? So the effects are a little bit dodgy and the intentions are, are, are a little bit wobbly. Um, and it all eventually slips into this horrible horrible, repulsive third act where Garland just goes full on Cronenberg. It is just the most, it is just the most absurd body horror sequences I've seen for a few years now. And I just think if you're going to have the, you know, a film like this slip into, you know, unbelievably gratuitous body horror, um, you, you have to earn it. You, 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 you can't just throw there at the end. So I was quite confused by this. I was quite repulsed. I was frustrated, annoyed, loved Jesse Buckley's performance. Which I'd, I'd love to know what film she thought she was making. I'd say that was the real masterpiece, but I just, I didn't, I, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get on board with it, Gordon. Oh, that's such a pity. And I do love my folk horror, but yet again, yeah. I've heard so many mixed reviews um, for the likes of men. So out of 10, Chris, what are you giving it? I, Deeply disappointed. I think it's Alex Garland's first proper dud. Um, and, you know, again, say for the thousandth time, the ideas are there, but the execution is a bit as subtle as a kick to the head and every bit is unpleasant. So I'm going to have to go with uh, four out of ten. Oh, there we go. Damning scores there from our Chris Wasser there. Four out of ten for Alex Garland's latest men. We love movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Now, earlier on, we reviewed Jurassic World Dominion and both Andy and Chris were 
fairly damning in their uh, review of it. And, and you know what? They're not alone. A lot of critics have felt the exact same about the, the latest entry in the, the Jurassic Park slash World Series in that it's a it's a right old dud. And unfortunately, it just completely peters out of a series which started so strong. But it got us thinking about movies that were almost felt like a one and done. You know, like with, with that first Jurassic Park movie, fantastic premise based on the Michael Crichton book. But you kind of felt by the end of it, everything was said and done. But of course, with Hollywood, if there's money to be made, they'll go back to the well and they'll try and develop loads of sequels. You only have to look at the, the likes of the never ending sequels that came with the likes of uh, uh, Halloween, Friday the 13th, to give you some sort of horror examples. But there are other series there that you go, you know what? You're just diluting your premise. There's really not much more to add to this. And these sequels purely exist to make money. They're just pure cash-ins. So we thought we'd kind of look at some of those movies in particular off the back of uh, Jurassic World Dominion, because for a lot of us, we just feel that um, really there's only one great film there. Some of you may argue and think Jurassic World, the first film, and that sequel series might be uh, also fitting, but no, it's really Jurassic Park. Chris Wasser is back to take a look. Chris, I'm going to throw some films out there that I feel really should have been just one and done, as it were. Um, Home Alone, I think really anything that came after it, like the second film is probably the better of the sequels, but that's not saying very much. But again, it was just <laughs> real copy and paste. The Hangover, great race against time scenario. And my God, did they drag the behind out of that one. The Matrix, we only have to look at the recent resurrections to see that that series should have ended a long time ago. And those two sequels that were shot back to back, my God, they really just... I don't know if it's necessarily tarnish, but God, you, you just forget sometimes just how great that first film because it unfortunately is blighted by those sequels. And another film I will throw into the, to the mix as well is The Highlander, which very much ends. It, it really has a book stop ending because, spoiler alert, Connor McLeod achieves what he needs to achieve. And if anyone remembers, there can only be one, which was the big quote in it. But of course, there weren't uh, that that wasn't that didn't uh, come to pass because we got about what was it? Five. Did we get four or five sequels off the back of anyway? Highlander. Um, it got worse and worse and worse as it went along. Chris, are there any films for you that you feel like, no, that that, that first film should be treated like a listed building and just left alone? Yeah, just to touch on a few that you mentioned there, I think the big, uh, you know, the, the inherent problem with Home Alone having a sequel is the idea that after Kevin McAllister would be left alone, you know, by himself, this eight-year-old, while the rest of his family went to holidays, that that could happen again. That That's the most far-fetched thing about this. Not that, you know, uh, Macaulay Culkin would be able to take down, uh, you know, Joe Pesci the way he does, that it would happen again. And it, it, it's it's almost it, you know you can accept it now that it was made in the early 90s but then to actually you know have all of these sort of reboots and remakes and sequels that latest one that horrible one with uh oh ashley b, b and yeah. oh yeah i remember ashley b remember when she was promoting it and the focus was about the, on the the negative response to ashley b having an english accent i don't think that was it at all i think maybe most of the negative comments were about the fact that this film was made in the first place um you did not need a sequel there and although there is something nice and warm about it i think it's just the fact that it's a christmas film and we all you know remember watching it while we were having a good time as children at christmas that's all there is to it the first one though is untouchable probably should have left it alone i think also again with the matrix i like in the matrix the original film to this 
wonderful magic trick that the Wachowskis performed that, you know, could not and should not have been repeated. And then the sequels, do you remember the Masked Magician series? Yes, where, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the Matrix sequels right there. That's when, you know, you, you gather all of these, you know, iconic characters around, you dress them up, and then you start unraveling everything and showing the audience things that they didn't want to see. We don't need to see behind the curtain. We didn't want all of those little Easter eggs in the first film explained to us. It was nice to have a bit of mystery and intrigue in there. And that's how I think of the Matrix sequels. And especially that last one, I don't buy into this idea. I don't know if you've heard about this, but this, there, there is the idea that, uh, Lana Wachowski made a bad Matrix film, The Matrix 4, that is, on purpose as a mm. sort of kind of retort or a response that, you know, it's supposed to be sloppy. It's supposed to be kind of, you know, a commentary on the studio wanting the sequel that they never really wanted to make. That is bull. That is absolutely untrue. It's not true. You would not set out to do that. I think it's a very good cover, but no, that's that's not what happened. Um, I think Blair Witch is probably... The, the 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 big one for me the fact that anybody would want to make a sequel or the fact that anyone thought a sequel to the original Blair Witch Project would work because that was you know lightning struck lightning struck on that film you know the, the, it, it's just it was there there had never been anything like it before and and actually have you seen the second Blair Witch I have because I actually went to the cinema to see it and yeah. you kind of go hang on a second this sort of turned into like a dodgy teen slasher movie i think it came around the time of mid 90s wasn't it? scream was massive and i think studios were kind of looking at different properties that they had to think hmm, what can we almost give the stream scream like treatment and blair which too was a book of shadows and it, yeah. it was shocking it was, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think, so I think the Blair Witch Two was probably around two thousand. So at that stage, you would have had definitely two, maybe you know, the third one was about to release Scream films, and the Halloween films were back up and running. You probably had Final Destination playing around at that time. So the studio that distributed the original Blair Witch Project thought this is this is potentially our new franchise. You know, it's that Jurassic Park thing again. You know, they never stopped to think, you know, they were so busy thinking of what they could do. They never stopped to think of whether or not they should do this. They shouldn't have. And, you know, in hiring a team that, you know, to me, from where I'm sitting, it, it looks and sounds as though they never even bothered watching the first one and hiring a completely different team. That was, that was the first, that was the, that was the big problem to begin with. And also that Blair Witch Project, it wasn't, it was a phenomenon, not just because of the film, but because of the way it was marketed and because of the fact that, you know, some, some very intelligent people, and hopefully I put myself into that, although I was quite young at, at, at the time, we were asking questions before its release. And, you know, maybe we, we were very naive. Is this thing real? What, mm -hmm. what, what is this thing about? Like, uh, oh, have you, have you seen, you know, uh, the stories about this, the ads? And then there was a whole website set up. I think actually, isn't, I think there was, uh, what were we discussing before on the show that the website is still live? Is that, is that, is that the film? There's I something about, yeah. Have, I think we, we definitely touched on it before, but I'm not sure if the, the website is still live. God, I must have to take a look at that and see actually. But that was all whatever. that was all part of the Blair Witch appeal, not just the fact that, you know, because when you really look at it, like it, it is, you know, the, the, the foundations of, you know, this, this, this at times very impressive found footage uh, horror genre. Um, but it's, it's quite, you know, it was made for nothing and there are flaws in there, but it was the experience. Like it wasn't it wasn't basically just it, what, we, what we saw in the cinema that made that film. But what we saw with Book of Shadows was just a disgrace. I mean, you know, it didn't really 
you know, it, it didn't really feel connected to anything that we'd seen before. Again, it looked as though Joe Berninger and his crew didn't even bother with the first one. That shouldn't have been a franchise. And it's actually weird that despite the significant failure of Book of Shadows, we ended up getting more films. That's right. We got another one that was uh, that came. I think what was it? With the team behind the recent uh, uh, Kong versus Godzilla, the director of that was behind the Blair Witch. But again, you know, you you can't repeat the the phenomenal success that was that first film. It's like the two directors, unfortunately, never went on to anything much after it. But they ended up on the front cover of Time magazine. That was the level of impact that a Blair Witch Project had. Just to move on, Chris. Now, you you you, I, some might feel that there was only one great film in this series. Others might think two. But Die Hard in itself, that was such a great premise. I thought. The second film was very much sort of by the numbers. What, where do we kind of change the location? And then, and the third film tried to bring things back uh, to the first film, tying in with the the brother out for revenge of the of the main villain um, from um, from the first film. But then the fourth film and the fifth film are fairly forgettable altogether. Like, are there any other particular action movies or any other movies just to to wrap things up that you think that should have been a one and done? Yeah, I think Die Hard is the perfect action film. And it's always funny to speak to someone who hasn't seen it because there are, believe it or not, people who haven't seen Die Hard and I've come across them. And to hear them think, oh, you know, is that not the one where Bruce Willis is running around in his T-shirt or something? And, you know, he's spouting out these silly one-liners. Yes, it is. But it's also brilliantly choreographed and well plotted and you know features some of the uh, the 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 best action sequences in cinema it, it's it's just it's perfect the problem with the second and the third one the second one was basically let's try and remake die hard from the team that brought you die hard we're going to try and do it again you can't really do it again and mm-hmm. and they did you know they did change up the location uh you know they did you know there there is there is a, an okay story there but it looks and sounds like as I say, a team trying to just like throw the same party that they threw last week. Everyone enjoyed it. Oh, well, let's just do it again. No, the first is always going to be the better. I have an awful soft spot for the third one. So long, and, and so long as Sam Jackson and Bruce Willis are together, when they are together in the first half of that film, the 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 franchise, if you want to call it that, it just it it comes back to life, and they are wonderful together. Uh, and and I just thought when they were separated, then in the second half, that's when it ran out of steam. So they're they're imperfect sequels, but I'm kind of glad that they were made. Not so much Die Hard 4.0 or whatever it was called, and then what was it? Live Free, Die Hard, Fight, oh. whatever. I you know even Bruce Willis had trouble. With the name, uh, he just he he like before before he started making direct to, uh, to video, uh, uh, you know, thrillers and actioners. I just love the fact that if Bruce Willis, you know, at that stage he knew he was making bad films, but when he, you know, still gave a damn, he would go out and like pick apart problems with films that you know this is good, but I, I hated this I hated this title and I didn't have fun doing this. And and one of those times was I think it was like the one show on BBC That's where nice. he thought, yeah, the, the, the title is a bit of a mouthful. Um there there are plenty of them. I think Terminator Terminator probably should have been no Terminator definitely should have been left at the first two films. Uh, Terminator 2 still is, in my mind, one of the most perfect mainstream science fiction action films ever made. It's the reason why you know, we might whisper it that I am not ruling out Avatar 2, you know, impressing those who are, you know, dreading it, myself included, because, you know, James Cameron has showed us before he made aliens when everyone said 
don't make a sequel to Alien. Do not even touch that. And look at what happened there. It was brilliant. It was nominated for seven Oscars. It was, it was a, a, a fantastic Alien film that you can separate from the first. You can admire the both of them. They're both different beasts. So I think Aliens uh, and after, after Aliens and after Terminator 2, all of the other sequels, it, it shouldn't have happened. But very quickly, I might end on The Exorcist. There was no need for an Exorcist 2. There was no need for an Exorcist 3. We got two versions of an Exorcist 4, whatever the hell happened there. And now, next, not this um, Halloween, but the Halloween afterwards, David Gordon Green and all of the lads at Bloomhouse who, you know, have unfortunately brought back the Halloween movies. We'll get into that another day. They've been charged with bringing back The Exorcist and rebooting the franchise. And not just that, some of the original cast members are going to feature. And I am dreading that, Gordon. Ellen Burstyn, isn't she back? So she's yes. playing the same character against to give it that sort of connective tissue. And with the greatest respect to David Gordon Green, he doesn't strike me as the man for the job at all. Wouldn't it be great if they went and had a bit of gumption and went back to Billy Friedkin and went, you know what? But then again, he probably be like, I'm not touching that. But really, truly, it's just like, leave it be. I'll, I will leave you finally, finally, because I'll put one more into the pot of a one and done. Yeah. And to go back to all things Arnie, Predator. And because ah. Predator 2 was a bit, yeah. granted, you're taking it into an urban setting. Granted, you're trying to do something different. Didn't really work. Then we had Predators, uh, which starred Adrian Brody, who felt like he was miscast. And poor old um, uh, Lawrence Fishburne. I think he was only dropped in at the last minute because I think Arnie's big cameo fell by the wayside. And then Shane Black, who, of course, cameoed in the first film, went on then to become a writer and director of note. And then it all came tumbling down for him then with the, the Predator. So like, we're getting another Predator film by all accounts. And uh, I think it's called Prey and it's going to be on Amazon Prime, I think. I could be wrong on that or maybe it's coming to Disney Plus. But yeah. um, one of those anyway, we'll, I know it's actually, sorry, yeah, it probably come to Disney Plus because it's going to Hulu, isn't it? It's going to be it is, Hulu yeah, yeah. It has, it's going to fall under the Disney Plus tree, which is quite odd for a Predator film. But, um, and also not surprising, um, weird, but not surprising that a predator film is just going to go straight to television or straight to streaming. Um, I'd love to know what was going on behind the scenes there. You know, I, I, this, this film, there never should have been a sequel. It never should have been a series, but it is quite odd that there is love there for these things that, that it's not coming to cinemas because as much as I, I, I hated Shane Black's the predator, it made nearly 200 million at the box office. So there, the, so people are going to see these things. And although I'm not looking forward to prey, I am looking forward to whatever stories come out afterwards about maybe the tussle between, you know, should this have gone to cinema, should it have gone streaming and what happened there? You know what? It'll be intriguing to see. I, one thing I will say, at least they've got an inventive premise this time. Instead of trying to keep the series going with another sort of sequel, this one actually is a prequel. So we're kind of getting back into almost... Uh, the uh, I think we're getting back into sort of Native Americans or is it real indigenous type of territory yep. anyway with this one, which looks like um, a, an intriguing setup for this new Predator. But anyway, there we go. There is our selection of what should have been one and done movies. What do you think? Have you got anything to throw into the into the mix as well? Do get on to Twitter and let us know. Just hashtag we love movies. Well, that's our lot for this week. Thank you so much for your company. From me, Chris and Andy, we will chat to you again next week from eight right here on Spin.